Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Instead of diving into the biblical text today, I want to look at another topic. And that topic today, I titled this uh, presentation, Understanding Culture, Millennials and the Church. And I mean to look at more than just millennials, uh, but the church and the American culture. The reality is this. When missionaries are educated on, on reaching a foreign culture, they often go through a rigorous process. This process includes learning the language, but even learning the language is only a start. They, they must learn deeply into the culture of the people. So there's a story about some missionaries, two women that went off in the foreign mission field. They spent a couple of years learning the culture and the language of a, an indigenous population in South America. After a couple of years of study, they went ahead and, and ventured on into this uh, indigenous tribe. The missionaries initially had great success. Uh, they were reaching uh, the local tribe with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and people were coming into their church and in their community, and things were going really well. But all of a sudden, after about six months or so, uh, women in the tribe stopped for, uh, began forbidding their husbands from visiting the women. And shortly thereafter, the people stopped, stopped coming to the church, the services that they were holding, and, and there was a, just a, a blatant failure um, on these missionaries. The missionary agency who had sent the women uh, had recalled them, and they, they came home. And shortly after that, a couple of years later, they had trained up another, couple, another set of missionaries whom the missionary agency sent back into this indigenous tribe. These new missionaries, after some initial success, began to inquire as to what happened with the previous two missionaries, why the women were having so much trouble and why they had initially had success, but suddenly it began to, to fail. Uh, it was explained to them after a short while that uh, by some of the women in the, in the particular clan, that the women were actually seen, these two women missionaries were actually seen on the porch outside the home that they were staying in, drinking lime juice every morning. Well, the new missionaries didn't understand. Well, yeah, okay, great. What's the problem with drinking lime juice uh, every morning? Well, in that culture, drinking lime juice was considered to be a contraceptive, a morning after pill. So it makes sense why the women in the, in the society and the culture began forbidding the, uh, their husbands from, from visiting these women and why these women missionaries ultimately ran dry. The reality, though, is that we have to understand the culture in order to effectively communicate on any level, especially when we're bringing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was recently having a conversation with a good friend and explaining to him that uh, my favorite song is Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. And I really appreciate Amazing Grace when it's played on the bagpipes. Uh, for me, being a good Scot Scotsman, Dalrymple being a good Scottish name, love Amazing Grace on the bagpipes. When the gentleman turned and replied to me, he says, you know what I think of when I think of Amazing Grace on the bagpipes? I think of a funeral service for a police officer. You see, this man had grown up for many years and worked in law enforcement for many, many years. I never would have thought of such a thing. For me, Amazing Grace in the Bagpipes is an opportunity to worship. It's a song of worship. But, but for him, it's a reminder of a funeral, of a service of a, dear, a dearly loved friend. In order then to com effectively communicate the gospel, we need to understand the culture and how words and languages and thoughts and ideas are understood by others. There's no mistaking the fact that as we proceed in the 21st century, the Christian church in America is on the decline. Uh, the Gallup poll from uh, 2008 to 2015 shows that the percentage of people that claim to be Christians in 2008 was about 80%. But by the year 2015, that number was down to 75.2%. The number of people that claim to be non-Christian religions was a relatively stable number, beginning about 5.3% and reaching about 5.1% in 2015. The number of people, however, that claimed none, no religious affiliation at all, was on the steady uh, increase. 
In the year 2008, there were 14.6% of Americans that identified as none, no religious affiliation at all. That number, however, by the year 2015, had gone up to 19.6. So about 5% drop in the number of people that claim to be Christian, and about a 5% increase in the number of people that claim to be none, having no religious affiliation at all. If we look more specifically, we can begin to see that, that, uh, that the evangelical Christian community, in a poll from the year 2007 to 2014, indicated that evangelical Protestant Christianity had declined about 1% over that span of time. The number of Catholics had declined about 3%. The number of mainline Protestants had declined about 3.4%. The fact is that the, growth, that the Christian church in the, in the United States is in the state of decline. Now, what happens oftentimes is that we look at these issues as though it's a generational issue. The young people just aren't going to church. The older people are going to church. As though the issue is more of a generational gap and, and, and personal preferences. You know, my parents liked Elvis Presley, and I liked the Eagles, and maybe the Bee Gees, but I really can't confess that on a podcast, can I? But what's happening, however, is over the last 50 years, we have been experiencing an explosion, not just of technology that has radically impacted our world, but a revolution in beliefs, a, ra a radical worldview transformation, a paradigm-shifting uh, world. To go back to the song Amazing Grace, for example, for many of us uh, older Christians, when we hear the song Amazing Grace, we, we listen to the words, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. And, and we stop and we ponder and we think, wow, how incredible it was that the almighty, powerful, eternal, loving God gave his grace to save a wretch like me. How amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Wow, it's incredible. And we stop and worship. The fact is, however, that for many millennials, the song Amazing Grace doesn't make any sense. Th their response is, what do you mean? I'm not a wretch. You see, the modern worldview that the millennials have come to embrace is this pluralistic culture that we're going to get into a little bit more, more as we proceed. But in that worldview, they look at themselves and go, I'm not that bad because I kind of compare myself to that guy over there, that guy over there. We're all pretty good. Not too bad. Not too good. But I'm certainly not Hitler. I'm not a wretch at all. So when we walk into our churches and we sing these songs like Amazing Grace, the younger people in our congregations or those who might be visiting our church have no idea what we're even talking about. So in order to understand what's happening, then let me give you a brief overview of Western history. Now, this is going to be radically incomplete and very oversimplified, um, yet it's going to be very important. Now, it needs to be stated, of course, that we're not going to be able to describe any generation and assume that every person in that generation fits into a perfect description of whatever the cultural vibes might be going on. In fact, today, because we're in the midst of a revolution in worldviews, there are going to be people that don't quite fit this millennial description and some people that do fit the millennial description. And what about the, 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 the Generation Z, the, the kids that are growing up after the millennial generation? So I'm going to speak in more general terms. And there's always going to be exceptions. That's kind of the nature of general terms. But Western history is often, especially secular history, is often divided by looking at what's called the pre-modern world. Now, the pre-modern world, you can kind of look at back, you know, 200 AD, 200, 300, 400, whatever it might be. I'm just going to use these general terms. Back in that time, knowledge was understood to be imparted by divine revelation. See, in the, in the pre-modern world, the universe was considered to be a rational place. There was more to existence in that worldview than just the physical world. In fact, most people in the ancient world, the pre-modern world, were either theists or polytheists. Once Christianity becomes official under the rise of Constantine, and you get Constantinian Christianity, then most of them were actually theists. But even prior to that, and even alongside that, most of them were 
were, many of them were polytheists. They believed in many gods. So the primary religion was either Christianity or paganism. As the Middle Ages proceeded, more and more and more people embraced Christianity and less and less people embraced paganism. But the conviction of this pre-modern world was that there's purpose to the universe, there's meaning. And this idea then lasts throughout the Middle Ages and came to be heavily influenced, of course, by Christian theology. Now, about the year 1500 or so, and again, all these worldviews transformations can never be dated to one particular uh, event, but there is an evolution. Things take time and take place over time. So what we're going to call the Enlightenment uh, begins around 1500s, and ideas of the Enlightenment begin before that, and maybe the official Enlightenment begins after that. But either way, during this period of time that becomes known as the Enlightenment, the idea becomes that reason uh, is indeed the source of knowledge, but they're beginning slowly to begin to reject revelation as a source of knowledge. Remember, in the pre-modern world, or the, the, the Middle Ages, even if we just call it that, knowledge was known through revelation. We needed God or the gods to reveal knowledge to us, and that's how we knew. The people then embraced either theism or polytheism, Christianity or paganism. But now, during the Enlightenment, the idea of, well, they're beginning to reject revelation. Remember, this is the same time that the Protestant Reformation breaks out. The Reformation was also a, a rejection of the church. Well, the Enlightenment grows up and begins, really, as a rejection of the church. The same things that led to the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was just, hey, we're rejecting the church, but we're not rejecting Christianity. And we're just simply trying to reform it. Whereas the Enlightenment is, now we're really rejecting the, the basic fabric of Christianity. The Enlightenment then, at its core, was a critical questioning of traditional institutions, traditional customs and morals, and a strong belief begins to arise in reason and science. There is truth in the Enlightenment era. Certainty can be attained, but it's, it's attained through science or it's attained through reason. Maybe it's empiricism or maybe it's rationalism. Theology, by this point in time now, many of the people had come to, become, had come to embrace what's called deism. Deism is the belief that there's uh, an all-powerful God, but he started the universe and has, but has nothing really to do with his day-to-day -day affairs. In, in a deistic world, there might be a supreme all-powerful God, but there's no miracles. God doesn't intervene in the creation. He simply began the creation and established it and imparted laws and rules, and everything that's happening now is just playing out of those laws and playing out of those rules. Now, at the same time, however, many of the people continue to go to church. So when we talk about religion during the time of the Enlightenment, it remained culturally Christian. Now, the Enlightenment eventually gave rise to what's called modernism. Modernism is the conviction that there is truth, um, but, and they believe that there's this all-encompassing worldview that can explain everything, but there's certainly no need for revelation. So the Enlightenment begins with this idea that we're rejecting revelation and we believe only in reason, but as it gains force, maybe by the 1600s, 1700s, this modernist worldview comes along that says we have no need at all for, revel for revelation. The scientists claimed that maybe it was empiricism and the idea of scientific naturalism, which is the conviction that only the physical world exists and that's all that there is. And we can know everything there is to know through science and empirical studies. The philosophers, of course, claimed that reason and rationalism was the, the source of truth. You may have heard of René Descartes, the famous philosopher who said, I think, therefore I am. There's, there's no need for divine revelation. I know that I exist because I'm a thinking person. Now, in the religious side of, of, of this world, in the modernist world, it led to a, what's called secular humanism, the idea that man's the highest in all of creation and what man discerns is, is ultimately true. But many people remained Christian in their actual practice. 
Now, one of the things that I think is a very significant thing in order to understand a lot of Christian theology today, as well as a lot of things that are happening, especially in the evangelical world, is the fact that during the modernist explosion, the church began to embrace modernism. The church began to claim, well, there is an all-encompassing worldview that's true, as long as you have the right starting point. The scientists say the right starting point is science and observation and empiricism. The philosophers say that the right starting point is reason and rationalism, but we have the right starting point. It's Jesus, and it's the Bible. So the church began to embrace modernism, and as a result, the church flourished throughout this period. In the modernist worldview, then, religion wasn't necessarily a bad thing. So most people at the popular level embraced religion, and the church became the source of comfort and assurance that we actually had the right view. Now, with the Enlightenment and the rise of modernism, much progress comes into the world. Progress in technology was viewed to be this good, and eventually the idea was it's going to help us overcome all of our problems. We're going to continue to discover more medicines and machines, and all these things are going to make life better. So the modernist worldview and the Enlightenment worldview was the idea was progress was the key goal. And ultimately, this progress is going to bring us towards a utopia, a world where everyone has peace and prosperity and happiness and health and, and life, etc. Now, of course, there were competing views of utopia, whether it was the communists or the socialists or the capitalists. But in the midst of all this, again, just to be reminded, most people were still religious, even though the prevalent worldview was really becoming more and more atheism. So to recap, in the pre-modern world, you had this rise of this conviction that the world was a rational place, but we needed knowledge, and it came through revelation. During the rise of the Enlightenment, you have this shift away from revelation and the shift more towards reason. As the Enlightenment proceeded and the rise of modernism comes about, more and more a rejection of revelation as a source of knowledge and a reliance upon reason. People have gravitated from the pre-modern world where they were theists to the modern world, the Enlightenment world, where they became deists and eventually they became atheists. But nonetheless, Christianity as a religion continued to flourish during this time. The problem was real simple. The modernist world didn't work. Technology didn't make medicine to heal diseases. It just simply enabled us, didn't only make medicines that enabled us to heal diseases. It also enabled us to make better bombs. World War I and World War II and even the Cold War and the arms race provided a death, a death blow to the modernist worldview. Instead of progress, simply making the world better with all cures for all of our diseases, we invented weapons of mass destruction, and we used them. This began to lead many to question modernism. Things are not getting better. They might be for some, but it seemed that they were only getting better at the expense of others. Colonialism and imperialism had led to conquest and, and a world of domination. Resources were being exploited, and rampant materialism was abounding. Many began to question the role of government, business, and the church. The means of progress were education, technology, and imperialism, and they, but they began to focus on harnessing resources from other nations, and this idea of modernism then became this narrative of domination. You flourish, but only at the expense of somebody else. Now, of course, modernism isn't all bad. I'd still rather have a modernist dentist or a modernist doctor operating on me. But in many ways, modernism then necessarily led to what's called postmodernism. Now, many of what we call the millennials today are postmodernists, and this leads us to the present day. Postmodernism now, by the way, is simply a, a word that means after modernism. We really don't even know what to call it. All we know is that we're in a major crossroads, a massive shift in thinking is taking place. We're at a history-making moment. We don't know what to call it because we're in the middle of it. It may be 50 or even another 100 years from now before we can look back historically and know what to call it. We call it right now postmodernism because we really don't know what else to call it. 
Postmodernism is actually more known for what it's against than what it's for. Now, postmodernism then began as a rejection of modernism. Now, remember, one of the key features of modernism was that there was this one all-encompassing worldview. There was, there was a way to explain everything, causality, purpose, meaning, and value in the world. The scientists said, we know how to do it. It's through scientific observation and empiricism. The philosophers say, we know how to do it. It's through reason and, and, and rationalism and thinking. The Christians said, we know how to do it. It's through Jesus and the Bible. But postmodernism begins as this rejection that there's no... All these worldviews, these competing worldviews, whether it's the communists or the socialists uh, or um, uh, the capitalists in, in terms of economics or whether it's the religious conv convictions, etc. They're all these competing things and they're all these narratives of domination and we reject all of them. Now, mind you, this worldview transformation really goes back to the late 1800s. By the time you get into the 1800s, you have Nietzsche and then later Freud and Sartre and others began to surmise that maybe God doesn't exist. After all, scientific observations began to tell us that we now know how the universe began and we now know the cause and the source of, of, of evolutionary progress. And so we don't even need God. So remember, Nietzsche made the comment, God is dead and we have killed him. The reality, however, was what, what Nietzsche was saying and what the philosophical convictions were of the time never filtered down to the mass of people. It never influenced the culture. It was still up there, but until it reaches the people, until some climatic or, or critical events or event or events happen, it may never actually reach down to the level of the people. This is often what happens in cultural uh, uh, transformations. An idea might be out there, and it might be out there for 100 or 200 years, and it may never filter down to the people. Or something catalytic, something significant might take place that eventually people go, yeah, that's what we were believing all along, and now this is what we're going to what we're going to do and what we're going to say and how we're going to approach this, and it begins to filter down to the average person. Now, at the time of Nietzsche then, and later on with Freud and Sartre and others, there was this conviction that there's no ultimate value, there's no ultimate purpose, there's no ultimate meaning. Neither the communist nor the socialist nor the capitalist have it all right. Ultimately, the conviction was that everyone's ultimately concerned only about their own well-being and, they, and they're doing so at the expense of everyone else. As a result, then this postmodern worldview grows up as this major distrust of corporations, governments, and institutions. And those institutions include the church. Now remember, postmodernism then begins with this rejection of these absolute claims of truth. So, well, what do they believe then? What, what's the fabric of postmodernism? And again, remember, because we're in the middle of this cultural transformation, this radical transformation in worldviews, there are going to be people on both sides of, of, of the equation, some believing this and some believing this, because it hasn't congealed and, and, and become this universal conviction of the culture. But nonetheless, the basic convictions are the rise of individualism. One of the key features of postmodern worldview and the millennial worldview is the idea of individualism. If government and institutions and corporations and the church can't be trusted, then the only person that we can trust is ourselves. Everyone must determine truth for themselves. And this leads to the idea of what's called pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that everyone has their own truth or that no one has the, has the, the total truth. There's no majority opinion which is absolutely correct and everyone else has to subscribe to it. Now, often this results in the conviction that Christianity was wrong. Because after all, the basic claims of Christianity is that Jesus is the truth and that all other truths are false. Add to the fact that much of the evangelical church and the Western Christian church had come to embrace modernism. 
a modernistic worldview that says there is one overarching narrative that explains all things. And that one overarching narrative that explains all things is Christianity, Jesus, or the Bible and Jesus as revealed in the Bible. The idea of of postmodernism then and the millennial worldview, it's ultimately a flat out rejection of Christianity. If everyone determines truth for themselves, then there are as many views as there are millennials. And that's one of the reasons why, in fact, it's hard to really define what the millennials believe, because it's a very individualistic worldview. And as a result, it's going to be different for every single, every single person. Now, they do tend to be more open to different ideas. And one of the key things then for us in the church becomes this. As long as the church continues to align itself with modernism, then postmodernism can be said to be a rejection of Christianity. Postmodernism leads to a rejection of Christianity. It's a simple fact of it. Now, it's important to understand this, and we'll talk maybe about this more as we proceed. Jesus did not hold to a modernistic worldview. Modernism is a product of the Enlightenment, and Jesus precedes the Enlightenment by 1,500 years. Neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor the Apostles, nor the Old Testament writers or New Testament writers actually held to a modernist worldview. The reality, however, was that Christianity had aligned itself with modernism. Think about it. Uh, the idea of post-millennialism that had, had arisen during the 1800s and, and uh, time frame. Post-millennialism is this idea that the, the world is getting better and better and better. More and more people are going to become Christians. This idea of utopia. You can see what's going on. That the world's going to get better and better and better. And after the whole world becomes Christianized, then Jesus returns. That theology can really gain great traction really during the rise of modernism. This idea of utopia. We're going to create medicines and health and technology and progress and industrialization. It's just going to make the world a better and better and better place. Well, Christian theologians kind of grabbed onto that and said, yeah, and the Bible teaches that. It teaches that the world becomes a better and better and better place because everybody becomes Christian and then Jesus returns. And of course, the the uh, great conversions of the uh, great awakenings in the uh, in American history kind of also fed into that worldview. Now, Christianity does indeed claim to be an all-encompassing worldview, and one of the key things, of course, that it's perceived of doing is saying, "Well, that means that everybody else is wrong." Now, mind you, the modernist worldview is still, of course, very much prevalent in much of the world today. But what happened then is this. This postmodernist worldview that really kind of goes back to Nietzsche and even before this idea of this growing uh, uh, theism that becomes deism, that becomes atheism, that led to rejection of, of truth and rejection of absolutes, became very significant during the 1960s. You see, after World War One and World War Two and the rise of the arms race uh, in the 60s, many people became disillusioned with government. They became disillusioned with corporations and disillusioned with the church. And they began to decide that all these institutions are out for themselves, and we don't want to be part of this. I'm not going to fight your wars with the protests in the 1960s. I, I don't believe in your wars. You fight your wars because you have your own agenda, and you're only out for your own self-interest. You only care about this country in the Middle East because you want oil. You only care about this country in Africa because you want its resources, or, or you want a, a base and a presence in this particular location so you can uh, maintain your own security decisions and security needs. And this protest movement in the 1960s rises up, being influenced by Nietzsche and Sartre and Freud and the, and the philosophical worldview that had arisen from the rejection of modernism. So postmodernism then begins with this rejection of absolute truth. 
They seek to find meaning, value, and purpose, however, in other means. And this is one of the biggest issues that we can address when witnessing and sharing the gospel of Christ with millennials and postmodernists, and that is this. They have no basis for meaning, value, and purpose. So often what happens with many millennials is, well, my meaning, value, and purpose is in finding a good job, um, buying a house, and having a happy family. And, and everything else they do is busyness. And they, the busyness, of course, is because they're trying to, tra- to chase not really the American dream as much as meaning, value, and purpose. Now, as a result of that, busyness is one of the key characteristics of our culture today in the Western, part of, in the, in the Western world. That means, of course, that they have less and less time for church. Church is no longer a priority. In fact, it's, an, a, it's often viewed as an option to a lifestyle that's already overloaded. And because of the fact that many millennials and postmodernists see no practical benefit to the church, uh, all they want is uh, all the church wants is their is their resources, anyways, right? All we want is their money. Uh, there's no even there's even no no real reason to to go to church. I don't have time to begin with. It's not going to meet my needs. It's not going to help me find fulfillment, value, or purpose. After all, it didn't work for my parents or or other people that I know. And I see all these Christians, and they don't seem to be happy at all. And they're trying to seek happiness, meaning, value, and purpose in the world. Why would they bother going to church? Now, technology has only served to advance postmodernist worldview. Technology, you see, has opened up the world. We're now a global reality. And as we know, and if you want to know what's going on in some foreign part of the world, all you have to do is open up your cell phone and you can be instantly connected with somebody in the distant parts of the world. As a result now, we meet people from different religions and different cultures. And many postmodernists or millennials will go, hey, the people I meet over in this part of the world, the Orient or Africa or South America, you know, they're pretty good people. And the fact that they're good people, it just reinforces their their pluralistic mindset. Remember, pluralism is everybody has this right to decide what's right and wrong for themselves, and everyone's right, and no one has this absolute truth. And as I meet people in other cultures, I realize, hey, there are good people in those cultures, and there are good things in those cultures. Yeah, there's some bad, but there's some good. As opposed to the, the Christian worldview that my parents and grandparents were trying to impose on me, which says that all these other cultures are pagan and wicked and, and, and godless. So when Christians then come along and say these, what they think are good, well-intentioned people, and that those good, well-intentioned people in this part of the world or that part of the world are going to burn in hell, millennials are just repulsed. They're repulsed by Christianity. When they see Christians as well in the Western world, not acting in accordance with the commandments of Jesus, they begin to reject Christianity even more. So millennials are then growing up on a world that's almost alien to the world that we grew up in. What they like how they think and what they value is radically different from ours. So again, we sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And the words, a wretch like me and God's amazing grace resonate with us. But when millennials hear the song, it doesn't make any sense to them. Remember, if truth and morality are relative, then they look at themselves and they think, I'm actually not that bad when I compare myself to somebody else. Postmodernism then is a rejection of knowledge, a rejection of absolute truths. But the reality is, if the gospel of Christianity is the truth, but it's not affecting my life or Christians around me's lives, then the millennial turns around and goes, why should I bother to follow it? So the question then becomes this, how do we reach millennials? How do we reach this radically uh, different, transformative worldview and perspective? Note, by the way, it's not simply a matter of my preference for this music and your preference for that music. That's what happens in a lot of our churches when we begin to say, hey, look, we've got to change not the gospel, but the way we are presenting the gospel. 
because the way we're presenting the gospel is a way that's foreign to them. It's not appealing to them. It doesn't make any sense. It just reinforces their convictions on these things. So how do we reach them? Well, my first point would be this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is actually attractive, and it's attractive to millennials. Jesus demonstrated humility, love, compassion, and justice, all things that millennials value deeply. Jesus spoke against the abuse of power, and he created a countercultural movement that aimed to bring good news to those who are oppressed. Remember, the gospel is good news to the captives, to the blind, and to the oppressed. Now, gone are the days when we can just continue to do church things and expect people to show up. The church is no longer valued. It's no longer esteemed by most in the present generation. It's simply not high in their priority list. People have more choices on weekends than simply going to church. Furthermore, the feelings of shame and guilt that many people used to feel and church leaders used to promote people to come to church are gone. And they walk into our church, they don't, they don't have the same sense of shame and guilt. They, they don't think that they need a Savior. So how can we reach them then? Well, the gospel is attractive, number one, because Jesus preached a gospel of love, compassion, humility, and justice. Another thing is this. If we live authentically before millennials, younger individuals, after all, think about this. They long for meaning, value, and purpose. They're seeking meaning, value, and purpose in jobs and in uh, prosperity and families and in homes. But many of them have broken families. Many of them are divorced and and their family situation is not very good and, and they're lost. So if we can show them the authenticness of the gospel and how it's transforming our lives and how Jesus makes a difference in our lives by giving us peace and, 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 and meaning and value and purpose, they'll be longingly attracted to that Jesus. Now, what I think is perhaps the most significant factor is this. Millennials deeply seek community and relationships. Now, this again is not true of all millennials, but they often find meaning in their community. That's why Starbucks is such a big success. I'm one of those individuals that actually thought that Starbucks had no chance of succeeding. I remember when Starbucks first came out and I'm like, what? You gotta be kidding me. People are gonna go pay $4 a, a, a day for a cup of coffee. That's 20 bucks a week, that's 80 bucks a month. There's no way people are gonna have in their budget $4 a day for a cup of coffee or a latte or whatever else it might be. But the idea behind Starbucks was to create a communal space, a place where they can come not only to get coffee, but they can come to have community. They can do their schoolwork, they can do their business, they can do their work, or they can just build relationships. The millennial world deeply seeks community and relationships. Now, they're often willing to change their convictions in accordance with the communities. So if we can embrace millennials and embrace them for who they are, then we can form community with them. And in doing so, we can live authentically before them and model Jesus to them. And in doing so, millennials may well be won over to the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is appealing. In fact, there was a, a pastor in uh, Santa Cruz, California who wrote a book about 15 to 20 years ago and he says, um, they love Jesus but not the church. Now, I think that's a tragic statement, by the way, and I think it's ultimately not even a possibility. You can't actually love Jesus without actually loving the church. But what, this, what Dan Kimball was getting at when he wrote his book is that Jesus is actually very attractive to millennials. It's the Christians, the narrow-mindedness, the dogmatism, the, the hypocrisy, uh, the, the anti-this, anti-that uh, agendas of Christianity. That's what's not actually very appealing. Now, the reality then is it's not necessarily about music. 
many of our congregations and many of our churches think, well, we have to change the music so we can appeal to, to millennials. Here's the reality. Millennials are not going to simply come because the music is relevant to them. Now, it doesn't hurt, and, and it's not a bad thing. But this isn't really an idea of contemporary music versus traditional music. This is a, 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 about making ourselves relevant to them. The reality is they don't have time for church. Many of them don't go to church, and they don't want to go to church. And if you think about it, they could probably stay home, go on their cell phones or on their computers, and get a better sermon downloaded in 35 minutes than they could if they went for a church for an hour and a half. Let's be honest, most of our pastors and preaching, and even myself included, are not as good as many of the pastors and preachers that are available on the web. So why would they go to church? Why would they bother? They could do it at home. The reason for them to come is because they have a community there. If we can embrace them, welcome them, and connect with them, then we very well can reach them and ultimately share and show Jesus Christ to them. Now, it's not going to be easy, and it's not going to be quick. You see, back when I was a child, and even the generation before me, Billy Graham would hold a crusade, and 50,000, 60,000 people would fill the Oakland Coliseum up in the Bay Area, or the LA Coliseums, and, or various facilities around, around the world. And they'd come here, Billy Graham say, you're a sinner and Jesus died for your sins so you can go to heaven and believe him. And people would embrace that. But the millennials today, they don't believe that they're sinners. Certainly not sinners that are worthy of damnation or needing of a savior. How then can we reach millennials? Well, let me summarize it again this way. When they come into our churches or into our communities or they live next door to us or they work alongside us, welcome them. Get to know them. But seek genuine relationships with them. Don't just greet them when they come into your church or don't just say hi to them when you drive by them in the neighborhood. But actually spend time with them. Sit down with them. Have a cup of coffee with them. Be careful at the same time then when you get to know them not to judge them. They may have values or opinions that are different from yours. They may have different political convictions or sociological convictions. They may believe in global warming and you may not. It doesn't matter. Don't try to convert them to your political views, your ecological views. Just listen to them. And begin to value some of the things that they value. Explain to them that the reason why you value uh, caring for creation and caring for the environment is because you believe that God created the environment. God created the world and it's good. And God calls Adam and Eve and all of humanity to bear his image and to make him known through creation, but also to care for God's creation. Show them that these things are, are value and meaning to you as well and why they might be so. But more than anything, build relationships with them. Earn their trust. Be there for them. Show them Jesus in a loving, kind, and compassionate way. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.